Hi, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A, a podcast to get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. Today, Zeke Thomas is on the show. Zeke is a DJ and music producer. He's also a sexual assault survivor and advocate. We recorded this conversation before the Harvey Weinstein stories came out, and in it, we say that sexual violence is something that we don't talk a lot about, and that's no longer true. We are talking about it, and hopefully we'll continue to talk about it. So big thanks to Zeke for sharing his story here. I want to say, too, that we have newly partnered with Panoply and are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you prefer to listen. We were launched as part of the AfterBuzz TV family, and they are the number one place for your TV talk needs. I've been there for a lot of years, and I'm really grateful to Maria Menunos and Kevin Undergaro who created AfterBuzz. And I just want to really encourage everyone to go there and find your favorite TV show. If you love Scandal like I do, there is a Scandal After Show that airs immediately after the TV show. It's a wonderful place, so I hope you continue to check them out. All right, without further ado, here is Zeke Thomas. Hey Zeke, welcome to the show. Hi Jeff, how are you? I'm good, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so let's get it right into it. You are the first male ambassador for the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. I am. That's a mouthful. Right? It is. Right, I was practicing earlier. <laughs> it does. I I still get kind of tripped up sometimes. But I, I was like, it's five words. I can do it. It's... But I bring it up because intellectually, I know that sexual assault and violence affects everybody. It all does. types of people, all demographics, and yet it's still surprising and powerful to see someone like you talk about it. I appreciate it. I mean, honestly, it's it definitely affects all groups of people, um, social demographic, races, creeds, everything. Um, but definitely being the first gay male to talk about it um, and specifically to talk about it as it relates to our community. Um, it's definitely something that I've kind of just taken and have really said um, we have to do something about this. Yeah. Also, like just like physically like you're tall and like strong looking you know <laughs> that's honestly i mean I, I i talked to ebro at hot 97 and he's he's actually my former boss when i used to intern and then i was working in programming there and he's like six four and big and he goes he's like if that would happen to me i would have fucked him up and i'm like it can't happen when you're drugs. <laughs> right. God. And I think, what is the stat? You said it's one in six men? It's one in six men. And it's one in six men have been sexually assaulted in their life. Um, so literally, um, it's all around you at all times. And it's it's something that men don't like to talk about. Because as you just said, you know, even though I may look, you know, like an athlete, it's something that, you know all different types of men deal with all the time and no matter your 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 size your shape it you you don't know that moment when you literally just have your whole essence just taken away from you yeah and and that's why it's probably likely underreported right definitely um it's underreported mainly because a lot of people get get ashamed i mean mine was more so um fear and it was fear of like media attention like I can remember growing up, um, growing up in a celebrity household, you know, when, when I would get arrested for underage drinking, that would be a story. So um, be myself being raped or reporting the rape definitely uh, would have been a story. And I definitely 
regret that not reporting it because um, many people don't have the opportunity to face their accuser. Yeah. How, how long was it before you told somebody? Before I told somebody, it was months. It was months. And I had told people um, in passing while I was high or drunk, but it wasn't it wasn't the setting that it was um, believable, so to speak. And I probably should have been believed at that time. You know, when somebody says something powerful like that, you shouldn't take it lightly. You shouldn't take it as a joke. But we all do do these things in joking matters. And I can I can remember many survivors have said to me, you know, I've said it and then I've quickly backed away from it and then nobody really followed up on it. But it was that person who said, you know, I believe you and did some investigating um, that really turned my life around. Wow. I, I guess because also there's just not a correct or incorrect way to respond. There's not. It's It's a shocking thing. And even as I sit here today and I deal with um this every day and I talk about it and I go to colleges and galas and um, all these different things to raise money and to raise awareness it's now that I, I I don't do it with a smiling face but it's something that you know I've been able to move on from but at the same time I'm fighting to prevent yeah is it hard to discuss with someone you're dating or like partners you're intimate with it was interesting when I was actually dating, um, starting to date this guy um, a couple months ago, and we were going to a gala, and he had known me, you know, as, you know, I'm, I'm a DJ, pretty big DJ, you know, I've actually had even, um, he'd seen me DJ, so when I was going to the gala and he was, you know, seeing a lot of people come up to me, he didn't realize why, per se, um, not that, you know, I hadn't ever been honored in terms of celebrity status, but it was it was a lot of attention and there was a lot of questions about sexual assault. And it was interesting because I said to him, you know, I, I, I thought you knew. I assumed that you knew. I never really thought about that I had to, you know, take this subject and tell you about it and open that can of worms, so to speak. So then, you know, I had to say, yes, I went on Robin Roberts and I talked about this on Good Morning America. And there's also an article in New York Magazine, if you want to read, but that article is also very vivid and deep and might not make you want to date me anymore. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, when you talk about these things with whether it's somebody you're dating or whether it's even a friend or somebody new that's coming into your life as you said the reaction and it's not that you know people are wrong for reacting the way they react it's just that that, that reaction hasn't been ingrained in our society i mean like, like i even said um received an award for breaking the silence um it was interesting that to me, there were just so many different types of people in the room who hadn't heard my story. And that's something that I want to change because we talk about murders and we talk about gun violence and we talk about, you know, drinking. We talk about drugs. We talk about addiction. We talk about all these things in our community very, very openly. But Sexual assault and rape is something that's very prevalent, unfortunately, in our community. And it's something that we have 
kind of just accept it. I mean, whether it's going to the bar or going to the club and you just see, you know, this young guy getting groped for no reason and he's just kind of accepting that. Or you go to the bar, you go to the club and you see somebody completely inebriated and yet somebody is taking them home a little sketchily. Um, now, granted, in our minds, those things are consensual, but would you consent to those things sober? So at the same time, it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not a pretty, it's not a pretty scene out there. I think that's a great point that in gay bars, there is more touching mm-hmm. than there is in other places and we let it go. And I, I guess like to your point, like that can be like the gateway drug, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's not that like I even gave the example at one of my talks. I'm like, you know, it's not that, you know, it's as it's as older males, as older people in, in, in the gay scene, in the gay society, even people who are older than us. It's like you you see things and you realize things. I mean, there is no manual for being gay and going out, you know, and when you walk into your first gay bar, when you even suck your first dick, it's like <laughs> there's no manual. You kind of just learn it as you're going, learn it as you're going. And the thing is like we have to be the people who kind of say, you know what, even though that happened to me or that's what's been happening, that's not correct behavior. It's not correct behavior for an older male to take a younger male home, which is fine, but then for that younger male to then stay there two, three days on drugs or drunk or whatever, when does that become you're taking advantage of somebody? Yeah. And and like you said too, like nobody, we don't have, because it's so silent, we don't have practice talking to friends about it. Mm-hmm. And so like, I guess like with the guy at the gala you brought, that could have been the first time he'd talked to somebody who had been open about the experience. Correct. Wow. You know, you mentioned Robin Roberts. I remember watching you on, it was Good Morning America, right? Mm-hmm. Speaking about it. And this sexual assault aside, I still thought it was radical to hear a gay man talking about gay sex in the way we meet and that how that experience has changed with you're talking about grinder yeah. on good morning america <laughs> i was like he's telling all Burr. our secrets yeah <laughs> hold the mic they don't need to know that <laughs> right i was like damn and I, I bring it up because if we aren't talking about the ways we have sex and the ways that we like meet up then we can't have a conversation about consent exactly and we need to stop being ashamed. Like people shame people who are on Grinder, and yet, you know, Tinder. And yet, my straight friends use Tinder to have sex, <laughs> just as much as we use Grinder to have sex. It's a rarity for my straight friends to say, "Oh, I'm going to go on a date with this person." Just as much as it's a possible rarity for gay people to say, "Oh, I met the, my boyfriend on Grinder. He's amazing. He's everything." And we started dating from the beginning. We didn't even have sex until six months in. And blah 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 blah. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen. So we have to stop. You know, stop grinder shaming. Let that burp 
be for real. Yeah. <laughs> but two, like it's okay to, for straight people to talk about sex. It is. And I think about like the memoirs that come out by rock stars and they're like, I estimated to have slept with 5,000 women in the last like 36 hours. And you're like, I don't want to do that math. But no, you know, we talk about, these are headlines. I don't, don't want to do those STDs. <laughs> yeah. But those are headlines, right? Yes. The, like the, the number that a straight man says he slept with. And then for a gay man to talk about that, uh, it's then still... Then you're immediately a whore or... Yeah, but it... like even as a queer man, I still like hear that and I'm like, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Like he's talking about it openly. D does it get exhausting? Last question about <laughs> sexual assault. Does it get exhausting to talk about in all these interviews? The thing like, the hardest thing is it, it doesn't get exhausting because there's literally, there's 80 million people being treated as sex slaves right now in America. And that's insane. It's an insane number that people don't talk about. People don't talk about people having to literally sleep with people against their will. Not just being raped that one time, but literally raped constantly over and over again by multiple people. So that doesn't get tired talking about. What gets tired talking about is people saying, why? You know, like, why does this happen? It happens because there are some sick people in this world and we need to be more vigilant about, you know, putting them on blast. Yeah. And going back to Good Morning America, I was really happy to see you say, I've met really nice people on Grindr. Hell. It has nothing to do with about Grindr. It doesn't. It is nothing. Me being raped, honestly, it had nothing, it had nothing to do with me being Grindr. And really, I tried to even keep the name grinder out of out of you know my interviews out of my things or even the bar that you know the the guy took me to because you know it wasn't it wasn't their fault and it's not their problem yeah it's there are bad people in the world yeah when when you say sex slaves are, is, are you talking about sex trafficking like what or what is that yes. really yes and what what was the number 80 million that's an outrageous number it's an outrageous number men and women 80 million and the majority of them are actually being trafficked by people like your banker or your you know your lawyer or people like that it's not you know what you think of the svu human sex trafficking trade it's yeah it's high class people doing horrible things and, and not the exact same thing but that's when why when things happen like our current education secretary, Betsy DeVos, you know, taking away the protections um, that, that Obama yes. put in place for college students. It makes me just cringe. She has no idea what young men, young women, young trans people deal with on a day-to-day -day basis on a college campus. You wrote Deal In It, a song about your experience, or mm -hmm. kind of about your experience. Yeah, I mean, dealing with it was... Um, I went to London and I wrote the record, produced the beat, um, and it just kind of came out. It definitely, I didn't go in there saying, I'm going to write a song about my sexual assault, but more so as a song that I wrote about my trauma um, that related to sexual assault. Um, it dealt with, you know, addiction and drug abuse and, you know, feeling like your power was taken away, but... It also related to my sexual assault. Definitely. I like too that it would. I like that it was upbeat. Hey, you know, because you're you're dealing with it. You're getting through it. You're not being overcome and 
taken from it. Yeah. You know? And I like that it was, yes, this is a struggle and no, there's not a quick fix and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Or it's not okay, but it's realistic. Yes. Are you going to be doing more singing on more tracks? Definitely. Um, I'm actually, I extended my trip in LA um, kind of indefinitely. Um, recorded a record in New York and now I'm filming my new music video here right now. The song is called Love Me Sober and it's with another artist um, called Lee Art. Um, he's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Lee Art? Uh-huh. Okay. And he's, he's also a little cute gay boy. A little cute gay boy. A little cute gay boys all around the world. And um, it's, it's, it's pretty dope. Like you're, you're going to like it. Cool. What'd you say the song's called? Love Me Sober. Love Me Sober. Awesome. That'll come out probably um, like right after or right before Halloween. Sweet. I, I have a really ignorant question to ask about DJing. Yeah. And that is when you're doing it live, mm-hmm. uh, now with digital machinery mm-hmm. like what are you actually doing because you're not just hitting play on i'm a not song just list, hitting play you know now there are there are times when you can rec- pre-record your set um which is done a lot at music festival festivals or things with like big scales of production like with dancers and you having to make an appearance here and do this and do that um basically how you hear you know a backing track for an artist but and wait, so and so when that happens at like a festival, it's a it's literally the famous DJ hitting play, and you're watching him kind of jam and fake it, ah, pretend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, am I am I? I guess I didn't say anybody's name, but yeah, okay. <laughs> but um, so when you're rocking live, um, it's think about it the same as with a record player or the CD player, but. Now you have unlimited amounts of songs. So all the songs on your computer are now accessible through that CD player. So instead of you having to carry, which I remember I used to have to carry like four crates of records. So that's like 200 records. So literally you plug in into digital disc where you can pick any song you want and you're basically scratching, mixing, generally the same. I can give you a, I can give you a, a show and we can film it and show about it if you want. <laughs> Your podcast just went visual. <laughs> so, so how do you how do you like practice that at home? Are you practicing li- like laying tracks on each other? I don't even know if my vocabulary is correct. No, definitely. Um, you're still practicing. You're still practicing the mix. You still got to get the BPMs right. So you know, 100 BPM goes to 100 BPM. That's a mix, or you got to go 100 BPM mixing up to 106 beats BPM, and you got to make sure that that kind of works and gets on beat. I don't know if I'm making any sense to you right now. So far, yes. I don't think I could handle anymore. <laughs> and you, you started working in radio at 14. I did. Was that legal? No, technically not, because I would end up doing the graveyard shift which is from 12 to 6 a.m. And that's not legal. <laughs> at 14, you at were doing 14, that shift? I was doing that shift. Do, do, doing what? I was running the board. So literally, if the sound went off, it was my fault. So I would have to, I, was, I wasn't talking on air yet. We had done pre-recorded, the, the jack had done pre-recorded drops, but I was the one making sure that, you know, Everything kept running. That is so much responsibility at that age. Right? 
Right? I should get a medal. <laughs> I wasn't getting paid. That's what I'm saying. Child labor laws. And also, I guess, we were talking about how much it's changed into lugging records around. I guess in that time period also, DJs have become household names. DJs have become household names. And more so, I mean, there were DJs who were household names, but more so now DJs have become completely pop culture. You know? Like you still had like Grandmaster Flash and like... Funkmaster Flex and like DJ Scribble and you know DJs who like you recognize their name but they weren't Calvin Harris they weren't Avicii you know it's like they weren't David Guetta yeah <laughs> they weren't these mega brands of people and even you know Carl Cox Tiesto you had a surgeons I mean Frankie Knuckles grandfather of house music from 1973 to now i don't even know if he could imagine what you know carl cox playing in front of a i think he played he played in denmark and was like 150,000 people for a dj like i don't think anybody could imagine that that's the power and impact now that a dj has wow what, what is your biggest audience size you've done <sighs> I mean, I paid for 10,000 people. You know, I kept it cute. 10,000 people, you know, at a festival. But I played in arenas, but they weren't really for me. You know, like I played for like at a basketball arena. So that's like 20,000 people, but they weren't really for me. But for me, I got 10,000. Okay. At that, at that size of audience can your mind even process that looking out across? Like I'm wondering if 10,000 looks like a hundred thousand just cause it's so big. It, when you get, when I get on stage, no matter what the audience is, it's always a rush. But when you see that many people going nuts for you, it's a complete adrenaline, adrenaline rush. And you start thinking about things that you would never do. Like I'm going to crowd surf. <laughs> Will they catch me? Like, you know, you start thinking about things like that. You're like, you know what? Why don't you just stick to what you're doing? Just stay on the mic and DJ. Stay on the mic and DJ. I still have not crowd surfed. Okay. I really want to. But I always have that image in my head of falling flat on my face and nobody catching me. They're like, oh, he's taller than we thought. Like, <laughs> Splat. L.A. Pride. That's what I'm going for. You live in New York at the moment, right? Yes. What do you think about L.A.? Because most of my New York friends hate it. Okay, so here's an exclusive. <laughs> I have been coming here for 10 years working and hated it. Hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. Now this trip, I love it. I love it. And I kind of want to move here, like for reals, and like bask in it. But then on my way actually to see you, I then realized the only thing that will always drive me crazy about this place. My friend who is supposed to be working, we're supposed to be working, we're working on a project right now. We're doing a music video and doing production and have to have a call. He woke up at one o'clock saying, do you want to get breakfast? And I was like, I've been up since eight. This is why people say you LA people don't work. 
<laughs> I would say I would not argue defend, with you. Defend, or you would argue. I would, however, I would say that it is the people who move here with that New York mentality and hustle who actually get things done. Got it. So maybe it'll be useful. You know what? He was a New Yorker. So I think he just, all right, maybe he's just damn lazy. I don't know, but uh, maybe he's got the bug. I'm going to give him a break because he was at an award show last night, but I mean, how much of a break? Okay. 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 <laughs> uh, how, how many out DJs are there? How many out- no, I mean, I don't, sorry, I'm sorry. Don't tell me the number. Mm, mm. <laughs> are there many like that are household names? Whew. I guess I'm not really a household name. Wah, wah. <laughs> um, Do you want to be? Of course. Why not? Boy George? I think he's a household name. People know who Boy George is. Does Samantha, Samantha Ronson count? Samantha Ronson counts. But Sam, you know... Sam's like DL about her shit. But I love her shit. She's not glad. Car- she's not a glad carrying card carrying Sam Ronson. <laughs> That's that's, a, but she's definitely out and keeps it one hundred. Culture, our culture is kind of obsessed with celebrities and the kids of celebrities. Do you think how much? And your dad is a famous basketball player. Mm-hmm. How much do you think that affected your perception of fame? It one hundred percent affected my perception of fame because as a kid, you were always taught to be on. So I feel like in terms of. Like when I ever talk to my publicist, he's like, you know how to answer every question. I'm like, this has been drilled in me since age two, like just media training 101. But then when you talk about fame, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Detroit and Indianapolis where I didn't really know how big my father really was until we moved to New York. Like I knew he was a great basketball player, won two championships. I knew he was, you know, great. I didn't know he was a star. You know what I mean? It's like there's a difference between, I think, being great at your craft and then being a star. Was there one moment when you realized it? When we went to New, when we went to New York and literally the moment I realized it was when I told you I got, I got, I got arrested for underage drinking and it was literally on AOL news. That's how old I am. So on AOL News, it was Barack Obama and me. Those were the headlines. So uh, I'm I'm shocked that that would be even a headline. Exactly. Like a basketball player. Isaiah Thomas's son arrested for underage drinking. Wow. And and so do you think that like having a famous father made you want to seek out and make your own name for yourself so that you're just you're not Isaiah Thomas's son only? I don't think that I. I mean, I didn't seek it out just, uh, in, in spite of my father. I just always loved music and I loved performing. So I always wanted to be an entertainer, not at the Grabbies. <laughs> <laughs> but I always wanted to be, you know, an entertainer. I mean, my my sister, she, she did want to be an entertainer. My mother doesn't want to be an entertainer. Like other people in my family don't. But I always, everybody always says since I was a little kid, I was making, I was selling tickets of them to go see my show in the basement. Oh, funny. And I would perform. I have another question about your father. Mm-hmm. We said it's Isaiah Thomas, famous basketball player. Do most gay people know who your father is? No. 
Most do not know who my father is. Is that horribly offensive? It's not offensive. It's not at all. It's sometimes it's hilarious to me, just like when they realize the stature of my father. And then sometimes it's hilarious because they think that my father is, there's another Isaiah Thomas who plays in the NBA now. He used to play for the Celtics. Now he plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And they think he's my father, even though he's three years younger than me. (laughs) So that's even more hilarious. But I can remember, you know, going to, um, like, I'm like, hey, do you want to come, you know, to um, a concert at Madison Square Garden? And she's like, yeah, let's, let's go. And, you know, to me, things are just natural and I'm not thinking, but, you know, we go into the box and we sit front row or go backstage and it's like, why do you get to do this? And then they're like, oh, Zeke, I just was with your dad. Your dad's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. Who's your dad? I told you. (laughs) When I asked my dad if he'd heard of your father, he was like, yeah. (laughs) And I thought he was going to like hit me. Yeah. It's just so, I think it's so funny. Like where some people are like the biggest person in the world to some people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but not others. To some people and not others. Exactly. Like I had never heard and I felt bad. I had never heard of Betty who and all my friends, all of them, it was during fashion week. They all were going to the concert. And I'm like, who is Betty who? Who is Betty who? Who? And I found out. I, I mean, I think that's a good show. There's so much pop There's culture. There's so, so much just stuff. Skip over people sometimes. You really do. I, um, okay, so Magic Johnson's son, EJ, is also mm-hmm. gay. Is there a secret club of famous basketball players' gay sons? There is. Yes, I knew it. Like a text chain. There, there actually is a group text chain. There actually is a group text change, and we frequently change the group name. Oh, what is it currently? Currently, it's Naggers in Paris. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, Ralph the Jay-Z album, you know, Naggers in Paris. <laughs> Who else is on the chain? I can't out people. Aren't they out already? No. Oh, that Not all of them. Not all of them. Thank you for doing this. No, thank you for having me. Of course. If people want to find out more about you, should they go to do like a website or social media? Instagram. Instagram. And I love the DMs. I bet nobody could tell. Um, Zeke, Z-E-K-E underscore Thomas. And there you have it. If you want to stay up to date on new episodes, live events, and other fun stuff, you can join our newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com. You can also tweet at me if you want to recommend a guest or get in touch. I tweet from at JeffMasters1. The show tweets from at LGBTQPod. LGBTQ&A was originally co-created and launched by AfterBuzz TV, and it is the inspiration for the new Sam Smith album. We'll see you next week.